Scotland in particular. Has Scotland basically already broken away from the rest of the UK? That's the implication of Nicola Sturgeon toying with the idea that she could place restrictions on people from England travelling into Scotland if they're deemed at risk of transmitting the coronavirus. Uh, the Scotland's First Minister told the BBC at the weekend, this is not about politics, it's not about a constitutional agenda, it's just about taking decisions to protect people in Scotland as much as possible from COVID. Now, some people might say that everything with the SNP is about the constitution and independence, but what impact is coronavirus having? What impact is Nicola Sturgeon's handling of it having on the prospects of breaking up the 300-year-old union? Uh, who better to ask than Sir John Curtis, Professor at Strathclyde University and sophology superstar, I think we can uh, safely say. He's going to talk us through all the trends in popular opinion. Good morning, John. Good morning, Matt. Uh, we've also got Alex Massey, a columnist for The Times and Sunday Times and Scotland editor for The Spectator. Good morning, Alex. Uh, good morning, Matt. And Angela Haggerty is also a Scotland-based journalist. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. Welcome along. Welcome along. So let's start with you, John. Um, can you just explain, because uh, sort of slightly below the radar, certainly for the, for maybe people outside Scotland, but the recent polls is not just a sort of blip, but recent polls do appear to show a consistent increase in support for Scottish independence. Um, that's correct. It's really a two-part story, Matt. Part one took place last year. Um, hitherto, until last year, basically when people were being asked how they'd vote in another independence referendum, we were getting figures still of around yes, 45, no, 55, i.e. replicating the result of the 2014 independence referendum. That said, underneath the surface, something was going on, going on because in the wake of the 2016 EU referendum, some people who were unhappy about Scotland being forced out of the European Union were switching from no to yes, but they were being counterbalanced by people moving in the opposite direction because it was quite a substantial minority of the yes vote of 2014 that voted leave in 2016. But hitherto, until last year, insofar as there was movement, it just basically balanced each other out. Last year, however, the polls began consistently say, ah, no, that's no longer the case. That the movement from no to yes amongst those who voted remain was outpacing the movement in the opposite direction. And as a result, on average last year, from April through to December, the polls were saying yes, 49, no, 51. In other words, it had moved things to a very close shot. And that the pursuit of Brexit, which perhaps hitherto had not necessarily had the impact uh, on Scotland that some had anticipated, given that Scotland voted virtually by two to one in favour of Remain. Finally, there was consistent evidence that at the margin, but at a crucial margin, it was beginning to make a difference. Part two of the story, however, really takes place this year um, after Brexit Day and in the wake of the coronavirus lockdown. And we've now seen in recent opinion polls a further increase in support for yes, the, the last three polls, 52%, 54%, 54%. But the character of this increase is different, and this is what takes us back to coronavirus. So whereas last year the polls were saying Remain voters are becoming more pro-yes, but Leave voters are not, the polls this year are saying that both groups have become a bit more pro-yes, although 
particularly Maine voters, are still much more likely to be in favour of yes than, than Leave voters. But Leave voters were also now apparently switching to some degree. Now, at this point, so therefore, it's no longer obvious that this more recent increase is to do with Brexit as opposed to something else. And the most obvious something else is, of course, coronavirus. And it's worth bearing in mind, and I think, you know, it's probably true, I suspect, Matt, that probably more people across the whole of the UK, and including not least England, now realise that quite a lot of life in Scotland and indeed Wales and indeed Northern Ireland is not run by the UK government in London. It is run by the devolved administrations because, of course, health and public health, the two principal foci of the first phase of the coronavirus crisis, are all devolved responsibilities. And those devolved responsibilities have been exercised to absolutely, fundamentally, the life and uh, everyday life of people in Scotland. The Scottish government's been making life and death decisions about health. So equally within Scotland, the Scottish government has had a prominence and an importance for people that, frankly, it's never had in the previous 21 years of devolution. And against that backdrop, we discover, according to more than one opinion poll, that people think that Boris Johnson has not done a terribly good job of, of handling coronavirus. They overwhelmingly think that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has. And this isn't just, as it were, the usual suspects of yes voters and SNP voters. Even amongst Leave voters and those who voted no in 2014, Nicola Sturgeon's handling of coronavirus is rated much more, hand, uh, more highly than Boris Johnson. So against that backdrop, it's at least difficult to avoid the conclusion that it could well be the case that a few more people in Scotland have now come to the conclusion that the SNP argument, which part of which is that an independent Scotland would be able to run itself rather more effectively, maybe slightly more people are now persuaded of that argument, such that we do have seemingly a small but consistent majority in favour of independence. Fantastic. John, John Curtis there talking us through the polls. So, Alex Massey, Times columnist, it's all over. Independence is going well, to happen. <laughs> uh, no, one, one shouldn't assume that current trends will prevail indefinitely. At the same time, however, of course, if you're looking at this from a unionist perspective, these are pretty concerning, even disastrous trends. I mean, you know, as, as, as John was saying there, you know, one of the striking things about the current polling is that Tory voters in Scotland uh, think that Nicola Sturgeon has done a good job uh, in handling the coronavirus emergency, um, that she has a higher approval, more of them approve of her performance than disapprove of it, which is a quite startling finding because it wouldn't be replicated uh, on any other subject matter, frankly. Um, and one of the odd aspects of this is that if you look at, uh, uh, you know, infection rates, death rates, until very recently in Sonia, there has been very little difference between the reality of COVID-19 in Scotland and the reality of it in England and elsewhere in the United Kingdom. And yet, because Nicola Sturgeon is perceived, and I think it's reasonable to say that she has this, um, a, a much 
clearer and more consistent uh, strand of communication, if you like. People are prepared to give her government the benefit of the doubt in Scotland in a way they are not prepared to extend that benefit of doubt to Boris Johnson and his government. And, you know, Boris Johnson at the moment is making the case for independence in Scotland rather more effectively than Nicola Sturgeon is. Indeed, you know, the First Minister has barely talked about independence in recent months. And that, I think, is also a revealing thing because it's one of those, it strikes me, that independence is one of those things that support for it goes up for as long as it's not front and centre. If you make it front and centre, then all sorts of other awkward, difficult uh, questions start arising. Questions about economics, about finance, about currency, and so on. You know, uh, the problem for unionists is that if at any point in the future there is to be another independence referendum, and that isn't certain, um, and it isn't inevitable, the, the problem for unionists, I think, is that if it's a battle fought on identity and culture, then they are on the losing end of that argument. Um, and I think that just as Brexit showed that sovereignty, if you like, was more important than economics, then if that was true for Brexit, I suspect it is also and increasingly uh, true for the question of Scottish independence. And that, again, is reflected in the opinion polling, perhaps, where you see you know, more than 60% uh, of voters under 34, under 35, a majority of voters under 50 um, say that at least as an abstract matter, at least as a hypothetical matter, they now favour independence. Um, and while demographics aren't destiny, um, you know, they are also non-trivial. Let's bring Angela in there. Um, Angela, it is right to say that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has enjoyed a sort of um, su the public support in the way that Boris Johnson hasn't, while actually not following a in policy terms I mean there may be, there may be sometimes there's been a few days or weeks delay but following a pretty much the same policy but possibly slightly clearer at explaining it but to what it how can being a, the competent face of a, of a health crisis translate into Scottish independence if, if you see what I mean because you're, uh, Alex is right that if you if you go into an independence referendum they then start being questions about the pound and the queen and you know i remember there was a lot of debate last time about whether or not cbb's would still be seen in scotland and you know all of those questions open up rather than whether or not nicola sturgeon as a person was quite good fronting up the coronavirus crisis yeah, I mean, so when we get to talking about economics, finances and what are really quite complex uh, subjects for anyone who who isn't involved in politics or economics, I think what the public's actually looking for there is not a sort of in-depth understanding of all of the issues, because let's face it, everyone's got jobs and families and everything else. <laughs> you, you, know, you don't have the time to, to be educating yourself to that level. But what the public are actually looking for is confidence. Do they believe that Scotland can handle these complex issues? Uh, that's what it comes down to. And I think that, you know, in 2014, that there was a lot of support, you know, support for yes had risen substantially, um, but it just wasn't quite enough. There wasn't quite enough people who believed that Scotland could handle itself as an independent nation. Now, what the coronavirus crisis has done, I think, is changed that perspective. Because if you think about, like, let's take Brexit, for example. Now, one of the things that we'd been hearing for years was that, you know, if we if we crash out, if we leave, there's going to be panic buying, it's going to be chaos, it's going to be like a disaster's happened and we'll not, no, we won't be able to handle it. Scotland would be a, a very tiny nation. We don't want to go down the road of independence and complicate it further. Well, the coronavirus has actually been a major crisis 
you know, on the scale that many people would, would I mean, we see this reflected in uh, the rise in mental health and anxieties. You know, this has really um, terrified people. And we have seen panic buying and we have seen fear and terror, all of these things. And you know what? Scotland's actually handling itself. And this is, I think, what's given people the confidence because they're tuning in to see Nicola Sturgeon every single day when she when she does her, her daily press briefings. She's very clear. She comes across as very sincere and genuine, I think. So even though, as you know, you can say that there hasn't been major differences in policy, but I think that she comes across as being much more sincere about it and much more cautious than Boris Johnson has been. Um, and as we've seen, you know, the figures in Scotland have been going in the right direction. People are feeling a bit more confident about being able to go back out and take part in some sort of normal life again or as close as they can get to it. So I think what she's done is she's basically showed that, that you know, if, if you need the confidence to know that Scotland can handle itself through crisis, through difficult issues, through difficult periods, then we can do it. And that's, I think, one of the core things that you might need to kind of swing those last, um, you know, kind of percentages over to the um, to the pro-independent side. Um, Devolution did a lot for that, I think, in the last 20 or so years. You know, we, we've had devolved issues and we've shown that we have a functioning and effective parliament um, that is, you know, that is substantial in itself. It's different from Westminster. It reflects values in Scotland, I think, that, that you maybe don't see as a priority in England. Um, and so I think that that actually has laid the groundwork and something as, as huge as coronavirus coming along. Um, and I don't think Nicola Sturgeon would necessarily be happy that something as devastating as coronavirus might be the catalyst for independence, but it certainly seems to be one of the things that's pushing people towards it now. I suppose it's one of those things where you could uh, I mean, Matt, say, if I could just... Yeah, sorry, go, go on, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I'd say just that, you know, I, uh, in terms of confidence and all the rest of it, sure, that's a long-standing feature of SNP thinking is that, you know, it's only when people have the confidence to believe that Scotland will be a success or can be a success that, that people will vote for it. Although it's perfectly possible uh, for people to have voted in 2014, to have voted no in 2014, despite thinking that an independent Scotland could manage, manage its affairs over the long term in a perfectly satisfactory manner. One of the things that will um, be required as and when the next case uh, for independence is being made is a complete obliteration of the 2014 prospectus for independence um, because although the Scottish government is seen as doing better um, than it perhaps actually has but certainly better than the UK government in the current um, crisis one of the things that has not actually sort of sunk in north of the border is the extent to which the Scottish economy benefits, uh, uh, Scottish households benefit from the economic support that is possible because of the UK Treasury. Now, in 2014, the SNP advocated a, uh, an independence plan that would have had Scotland without a central bank. Uh, you know, for instance, and that, you know, given the quantitative easing process that has been going on in the, in recent months and so on, would have been an utter disaster, I think, for Scotland. Um, you know, when it comes to a lot of the hard nuts and bolts of of the independence argument, um, you know, there are still no satisfactory answers to those questions from the SNP beyond perhaps a slightly increased willingness to acknowledge that, yes, the early years of the new nation would be pretty difficult, um, but in the longer term, uh, they, it would all be worthwhile and for the best. Um, and that is at least, I suppose, a marginally more honest prospectus than that presented in 20, 2014, which determined that immediately we would all be wealthier um, by some sort of magical outcome 
alchemy, political alchemy. Um, but it, you know, it, it does suggest to me that that, that some of the uh, questions about an independence referendum right now remain slightly hypothetical. Um, but guess, again, the problem for unionism <laughs> is that it has to be about something more than mere accountancy. Yes, you know, it can't just be I'll about you... financial benefit. Let's bring Angela back in, and then we'll go back to John. Sorry, Angela, what were you going to say? Yeah, just the, the, the you know if you, if you're if you're measuring the potential for people to vote for independence purely on SNP policy, then I mean if you go back to 2014, it would never have been a 45% yes vote if this was purely on SNP policy and their own prospectus. You have to remember that there is a whole independence movement. There is another political party, the Green Party, that's pro-independence, um, and you have actual kind of you know groups um, and you know like you have think tanks, you have campaigning groups, all sorts of things sprung up during um, the, the campaign for independence and lots of them have very different ideas of what an independent Scotland would look like. Um, they're not that well, keen on the SNP. Ones, and yes, what and they expensive are, ones. And, <laughs> But but they but they they have you know but they are proposing that Scotland could be a different kind of country etc. And their proposition is that we need to win independence, then we can vote in for political parties that reflect those things that we want to change. Now that was actually really important in 2014 because people were buying into the the idea that they could really like you know, monumentally change the kind of country that they live in. And if those same groups, which still exist now, and if anything have strengthened over that time, if we have another independence campaign, then you're going to have a much stronger grassroots network um, that's ready to mobilise straight away. So it doesn't all just hang on the SNP policy. There's a lot more at play. Um, Angela, as you quite rightly say that if we have another independence campaign, that's not... Uh, for certain. Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon is at various points, and, you know, events keep coming along with slightly derail it, but at various points say if if certain things change and, you know, the, the uh, vote uh, in favour of Brexit was one of them and then uh, how um, the SNP performed in the general election. Uh, we've also got Holyrood elections coming up uh, next year and it, was a, it seems a fair assumption that if the SNP do very well in that, then they'll demand another uh, referendum, but it seems the Westminster Parliament... Boris Johnson will just keep rejecting it. John Curtis, this is bringing you back in. What's the current state of play of, of how the SNP are doing in the polls and how that might play out in the Holyrood elections next year? Um, the polls have been putting the SNP at around the 50% mark, both for Westminster and Holyrood, really since the beginning of this year. Um, and indeed, the most recent poll, 50% on the regional vote, 55% on the constituency vote for Holyrood which translates into a quite substantial double-figure overall majority for the SNP alone. So I think the problem that the UK government potentially faced, now, of course, no, I mean, Alex is quite right. There's a lot of water to flow under a lot of bridges between now and next May when the election is due to be held. But if we get anything like that kind of result, and if we assume that unlike in 2016, the last Scottish Parliament election, um, the Scottish, the SNP comes out unambiguously in favour of saying, we want to have another independence referendum. The simple question that will face the UK government is, well, okay, back in 2011, David Cameron, a Conservative Prime Minister, accepted that because the SNP have an overall majority in the Holyrood Parliament, they have the moral right to hold a referendum. It, the question that will face Boris Johnson is, why does the same argument not follow? Now, of course, what is true? The Conservative Party repeatedly says, ah, but, you know, the SNP said this was a once-in-a-generation event. And it's quite reasonable to point out that the SNP might have changed their minds. The problem is, however, is that if 
the Scottish public decide to give an SNP who have put another referendum in their manifesto, then the, the public may have said, well, I'm terribly sorry, Prime Minister, but we have changed our minds. So, yeah, it, it, it could end up happening. It's something that the UK government cannot ignore. Uh, just finally then, yeah. we've I mean, been you... talking this morning about what politics might look like in four years' time. Will Scotland still be part of the UK in four years? Alex? Um, I'd say that's probably about a 50-50 proposition at the moment. Um, you know, <laughs> that's a cop out uh, of an answer. The UK government will say, will, say, will say no, and that will buy it some time. But uh, no, no, no is not a long-term nor a viable strategy for the long term in terms of the United Kingdom's survival. Um, Very good. And um, the longer Boris Johnson is in, in Downing Street, the less likely the UK is to survive. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds before the news. Angela Haggerty, uh, in four years, will Scotland still be in the EU? In the UK? Well, you know, after the, the referendum in 2014, I predicted that I thought Scotland would be independent within five to ten years, so I'm going to stick to that. So you're still there. You're still, <laughs> your your, your ten-year window still gives you a possibility. Yeah. Finally, John Curtis, will Scotland still be in the UK in four years? The crucial point, Matt, is that, we are, that whether or not Scotland will be in the Union in the next four years is now less certain than that it ever has been in the past which is why it's so fascinating and good to catch up on it. That was John Curtis there, Professor of Strathclyde University. Angela Haggerty is a Scottish-based journalist and Alex Massey is a columnist for The Times and The Sunday Times.